0: Presently, by God's grace, we are undertaking a complete exegetical study of Paul's letter to the Romans. In our last episode, we gave an introduction to the book of Romans, and in this episode, we begin in earnest our trek, verse by verse, through Paul's epistle to the Romans. Keep in mind, as stated, that Paul is now on his third missionary journey riding from the city of Corinth to the church of Rome, where Paul has not yet visited. Let's begin our first step to Romans with chapter 1, verse 1. Verse 1. Paul, a servant of Jesus Christ, called to be an apostle, separated unto the gospel of God. Now here we have what appears to be simply a preamble, or an introduction, if you will, to the Roman Church by Paul. However, when we take a closer look at it, we actually find quite a bit of theological doctrine incorporated there, which is worth looking at. In particular, we have, we have four words which need to be translated properly. The first word is servant. In the Greek, the word servant is doulos, which means actually bond slave. Now, to understand what a bond slave is, we need to go back to the Mosaic Law, and there in the Mosaic Law, there are six days with which you're allowed to work, and the seventh day was commanded as a day of rest. Now, moving forward, likewise, uh, if you owned land or were planting crops, as for an example, you could do so freely for six years. However, According to God's commandment, during the seventh year, you were prohibited from planting, cultivating, harvesting, or working the land in any way. By commandment, you had to let the land rest. This seventh year was called the year of Jubilee. During the year of Jubilee, if you owned slaves, you had to allow any servants that you owned to go free and to forgive their debts. Now, the servant being free could then choose to either strike out on their own as an autonomous person, or the other choice was to opt to stay voluntarily with their former owner as what was called a bond slave, who would be obedient and subservient to their benefactor slash owner. To formalize this new covenant, the freed slave if they chose voluntarily to stay, would appear with the former owner in front of the elders of the city, and the freed slave would have their earlobe bored through with an all like device against the doorpost. This then signified that the individual had become a volunteer, lifelong slave of the would-be master, The second word is the word called, which in Greek is kletos, which means one who is called, invited, or has an appointment to apostleship. The third word is the word apostle, which simply means sent one, one who is sent on service or with a commission to do a particular thing by someone who has authority to give that commandment or servant to said apostle. And then fourthly, we have the word separated, which is aforzo, which means to mark off by bounds or to set aside by delineation. Now, when we put all four of these into context in the sentence given in the opening verse by Paul, we realize some phenomenal New Testament principles of grace which we would otherwise miss if we simply left this to an opening statement or introduction. In the New Testament sense, as you will recall, it is God who calls or elects those by his sovereign grace, those who he wants to be his children. So that is why we call the church the outcalled ones, the ecclesia, because it is God who is doing the choosing and the calling And in this case, Paul is picking up on the fact that he is called. Secondly, we have the one word apostle, as stated, which is one who is sent. So clearly, Paul is called by the sovereign grace of God and is sent with commission to do the preaching of the gospel. And then lastly, we have the word separated, which means to mark off by bounds. And clearly we can see that Paul was protected and kept by the hand of God's providential grace until it was his time. And lastly, the beginning word being doulos, or bondslave. And as you'll recall in the New Testament uh, principles of grace, one cannot be a true doulos, or servant of Christ, unless in fact they are called sovereignly by God, and they are sent, and then they are separated or marked off by bounds. So once they are called, they are set free in the same way that an Old Testament slave would be set free, and they are given the choices. However, any slave who has a good owner, in this case, who is owned by God, who is owned by Christ due to his propitiatory sacrifice, would make no other choice than by God's sovereign grace than to do the same thing that the Old Testament slave would do in the Old Testament, which was to go with the master and to follow the master and to be obedient to listening, which is the sign of having your ear pierced, and to then become a lifelong voluntary slave of said owner, in this case, Jesus Christ. None of this can happen without God's calling, God's sending, and God marking off his chosen elect who are then his bond slaves. Now, you might bristle at the idea of being a slave, but the reality is that you only have two choices. You're a slave no matter what. The question is, to whom will you be a slave? You will either be a slave to sin, separation, the world, the flesh, and ultimately Satan, whose purpose is to kill, destroy, and to steal, or, by God's grace, you'll become a bond slave of Jesus Christ, and you will truly be set free, yet because of his ultimate goodness and his grace and his love for for us, you will voluntarily wish to follow and become a bond slave in the same way that Paul is claiming to be a bond slave. So let's read this uh, verse again. Paul, a bond slave of Jesus Christ, called by God's sovereign grace to be sent and to be separated or to be set aside unto the gospel of God would be to God that we all could make this claim. Verse 2, which he had promised afore by his prophets in the holy scriptures. Now, as stated before in a previous episode entitled, Jesus the Messiah Has Come, What we learn by doing a survey of the Old Testament is that we can find over 300 prophecies contained in various books of the Bible, which give very specific prophecies and details as to some aspect of Jesus' birth, life, ministry, trial, crucifixion, death, and resurrection, all of which were written at least, minimally, 300 years before he was born and were fulfilled in precision when he was born or during his ministry. Here, the good news, i.e. the gospel, is the finished work of Christ, which satisfies all of the legal and propitiatory requirements of the Mosaic law, and is the substance of all those types within the Old Testament, which point to redemption via a Messiah, Yeshua, Jesus the Christ. So Paul is simply saying here that the Jesus Christ in question to whom he is a bond slave, is in fact the same Messiah who was prophesied since Genesis 3 forward all the way until the time when Paul received his commission. Verse 3, concerning his son Jesus Christ our Lord which was made of the seed of David according to the flesh. So verse 2 and 3 confirms that the substantive subject matter of the Old Testament, the law, the prophets and the prophecies and the gospels all intersect and are fully realized in the person, nature and attributes of Jesus of Nazareth, the Christ, the second person of the Godhead. The confusion and inability of many people, and in particular the Jews during Jesus' time, to acknowledge or accept Jesus of Nazareth as the Messiah of Scripture, was based primarily upon two issues. The first issue is man's nature of self-pride, self-sufficiency, rebellion, and arrogance, which all men, including the Jews, have as our nature. Essentially, then and now we fail to understand the purpose and the goal of the law which was and is to lead people as a schoolmaster to our recognition and confession of our total inability on our own and our need for a savior Instead, the pursuit then and now in the camp of legalism became institutionalized self-righteousness based upon fervent attempts to adhere to the Mosaic law in comparison to others who, horizontally speaking, appear to do less, and thus, by comparison, help us to feel better about our situation and supposed goodness. Secondly, in looking at the various prophetical statements throughout scripture which describe the coming Messiah, one can ultimately see that there are two missions which are given which in reality occur at different times in God's eschatology. Unfortunately, many confuse the two historically as one mission or as two different messiahs in history And thus, because Jesus of Nazareth only fulfilled one mission during his birth, life, death, and resurrection, many, in particular the Jews, rejected him. In hindsight, we understand now that the two missions are prophetical titles of the Messiah, Jesus of Nazareth, with one mission in two phases, separated by an undetermined period of time. The first title, which can be found in many places in the Old Testament, is Messiah ben Joseph, who had a mission of servanthood, suffering, humiliation, mocking, crucifixion, death, burial, and resurrection, as we see marked in Jesus' life by many prophecies, including Psalm 22, Isaiah chapter 7, chapter 52, chapter 53, chapter 61, Micah 5, and Zechariah chapters 9 and 12. The second title, which can be seen in many Old Testament prophecies, is Messiah ben David, who has a mission of ruling, reigning, and conquering as king of kings, as is his right, marked by prophecies such as Psalm 110, Isaiah chapter 9, chapter 11, chapter 49, chapter 61, and Jeremiah chapter 23. Moving forward to verse 4, And declared to be the Son of God with power, according to the spirit of holiness, by the resurrection from the dead. So, these verses are primarily for the benefit of many of the Jewish believers, but also have some relevance for Gentile converts. This is a reminder that we are talking about more than mere religious speculation. Rather, we are talking about a historical fact, again backed by more than 300 plus specific prophecies predicting the coming Messiah, Jesus the Christ. The declarations of prophecy are more than abstract historical rhetoric. These are the same prophecies historically culminated in the birth, life, crucifixion, death, burial, resurrection of Jesus Christ. Thus, the declarations and prophecies ultimately find power behind them, which prove and can only be explained by God's omnipotence, sovereignty, and authority. Secondly, Jesus' repeated miracles recorded, including his own resurrection, were and are for the express purpose of proving and demonstrating his identity as the Messiah and his deity as God. Verse 5, by whom we have received grace and apostleship for obedience to the faith among all nations for his name. Here again, grace, keras which simply means unmerited favor. It's something we don't deserve and we haven't earned. Obedience, hupako, which simply means to hear with obedience. So we receive grace and apostleship by obedience to the faith which God gives us and there is no mention of works or of effort, or of any merit on our end. Verse 6, Among whom are ye also the called of Jesus Christ? Called, the Greek is kletos meaning appointed or invited. And as always, we are reminded by Paul that it is only by God's grace that by the power of his indwelling Holy Spirit, we receive the gift of apostleship that is, being sent, and that is, we are sent ones, we are called to be salt, to be light, to testify, to share the good news of the gospel. To this we must, and we shall, if so be, we truly know him, be obedient. Verse 7, to all that be in Rome, beloved of God, called to be saints, grace to you, and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Here, saints, hagios, this is not people who have reached some super spiritual walk on water, float in the air status and ability to generate miracles, but simply all believers who have sincerely been called and who have been separated from sin and who are consecrated to God. That's it. If that's if so be you have been called then you are a saint. Peace, Irene in the Greek, simply a cessation of againstness, a harmonization between God and man. This is not peace of the world in the sense of no war or no strife between other persons, be they male or female or nations or such. This is a relational peace between God and that person or persons who He has sincerely called to be His uh, child, and who has been forgiven. And now there is no longer any animosity between uh, God and the saint, because that has breach has been healed by the propitiatory sacrifice of His Son, Jesus Christ. Now, here again, in verse 7, we find a salutation to the church at Rome, the uh, beloved of God, those who are called to be saints. Now, going back to our introduction, which we had previously, here again, while admittedly an argument from silence, we have to really question the doctrine of the Roman Catholic theory that Peter was at this point the bishop of the Roman church. Because if he had been, had he been at the church, in the church, or part of the church at the time when Paul wrote this letter, then seriously, why does not Paul greet Peter by name? If he had been a bishop of the Church of Rome at this point for 18 years, one would certainly expect Paul to mention and greet Peter since this letter is clearly addressed to the church in Rome verse 8. First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for you all that your faith is spoken of throughout the whole world. Now, the whole world in this case is not the geographical globe from uh, the North Pole to the South Pole and all points of the compass. Rather, the whole world in this case In context, would be any geographical areas to which the gospel of Christ had reached and to which the results could be appreciated by those whom it had positively affected. At the end of the day, Paul is proud of the Roman church and gives all glory to Jesus for the fruit. But notice that the fruit is not the size of the church, or the popularity, or the programs, or the entertainment. The fruit is the faith of its members. Verse 9 For God is my witness, whom I serve with my spirit in the gospel of his Son, that without ceasing I make mention of you always in my prayers. Mention here in the Greek, menei, is a recollection, a recital, a making mention by name in prayer. So. Number one, Paul reminds the Romans and us that he has come to a grace given determined purpose in life, which is that he considers himself to be a slave, again a doulos, a bond slave, whose reasonable sacrifice is to serve the gospel, the good news regarding Jesus the Christ. And two, Paul's habit was to covenant himself to praying for all those whom God brought him into contact with, so that they would continue to be sanctified and comforted until Christ's return. Verse 10, making request, if by any means now at length, I might have a prosperous journey by the will of God to come unto you. Request in Greek is simply diomai, a petition or a, a begging And here, clearly, Paul reveals his inner desire, which is to go in person to the saints in the Roman church and to give further edification and comfort to those people as he is here limited to doing simply by letter. Verse 11 gives us his purpose in wanting to go to the church. For I long to see you that I may impart unto you some spiritual gift to the end ye may be established. Here established in the Greek, starizo, is to turn resolutely in a certain direction. So either he's saying that for those who do not know Christ in a sincere relationship, he is hoping to go there in order to turn them in that direction and to by God's grace, bring them to a relationship with Christ. And secondarily, for those who are sincerely in a relationship, his desire is to bring further sanctification, clarification, teaching, and whatever spiritual gifts which tend to establish them in their walk and their faith with God. Verse 12 That is, that I may be comforted together with you by the mutual faith of you and me. So, in total, verses 10-12 to explain Paul's reason and goal for wanting to return to Rome. I mean, firstly, Paul wanted it to be God's sovereign will that Paul would return and that it would bear more fruit. Second, the fruit Paul prayed to see were those gifts of the Spirit which God saw fit to bestow upon believers so that in the end their spiritual resolve to follow Christ and to remain steadfast would be solidified. And finally, the fellowship of like-minded Spirit-filled believers would serve to comfort one another through their mutual faith and trust in Christ while enduring persecution, suffering, and in some cases, death. In verse 13 now, the letter turns slightly to a different subject here. Paul says, Now I would not have you ignorant, brethren, that oft times I purposed to come unto you, but I was let hereunto, that I might have some fruit among you also, even as among other Gentiles." So let's look at some of the language here to help us understand what Paul is saying. Now, in the first sentence, he says, I would not have you ignorant. So here in the Greek, it is the absolute negative. It's saying, there's no way I want you to be ignorant. It's just the opposite that he wants. He wants the saints to be enlightened, to be given information. Secondly, the Old English word, let... Where Paul says he was let here too literally originally meant to hinder or to restrain. Now let means to allow something. So we have to go back and understand that the word let here actually means to restrain. So Paul was restrained from coming either by God or by external forces or by both, even though he wanted to go there. But despite Paul's desire and purpose to return, Paul wants the Romans to know that he was hindered from returning. We are not told who or what was hindering, whether it was circumstances, whether it be Satan or God. Given the placement of the word uh, not, as we earlier looked at, grammatically in the sentence, it is possible to draw the inference that Paul was trying to reassure the Romans that his failure to return was not due to apathy or disinterest, but was in fact grounded in circumstances which he could not prevent or change. Verse 14, I am a debtor both to the Greeks and to the barbarians, both to the wise and to the unwise. Here the word debtor in the Greek is ofilitis, which is to be under obligation morally before God. So he is morally a, uh, under obligation. Obligation before God, and both to the Greeks and to the barbarians, to the wise and to the unwise. Again, Paul saw himself as a slave, i.e. doulos, not only to Christ but also to the Greeks who were intellectually sophisticated due to uh, the pre-existing Greek philosophy, but to those who were not, i.e., the barbarians. Paul recognized that he was more obligated to everyone because he had been privy to God's supernatural revelation, which is always meant to be shared with those less fortunate. And finally, verse 15. So, as much as in me is, I am ready to preach the gospel to you that are in Rome also. So, to paraphrase, to the degree that God had gifted Paul, Paul was ready to preach the gospel to those who were at Rome despite the obvious dangers and challenges involved with Rome. In fact, Paul was prepared to preach the gospel both there and anywhere else to all who would listen. This concludes this episode. We'll pick up next time in verse 16 Now, if you have any questions about God, the Bible, or the Christian faith, I encourage you to send me an email at pastor underscore Yeshua at yahoo.com. That's P A S T O R underscore Y E S H U A at yahoo.com. Thank you for listening.
1: Found me Christ the rock is my foundation. I will trust him. I will trust in him. I will trust him.